Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. So as I've told you many times, I'm a high school math teacher, and school is back in session. And there are certain days when I try to make it as absolutely awkward as possible to keep them on their toes and everything. And so if you'll humor me, um, we're going to try an exercise that I use with my kids um, in a totally different context, obviously. I don't talk about Jesus a lot at public school. But if you would, take your dominant hand, hold it wide open, take your weak thumb, and give me the thumbs up, and for about a minute, I'm going to ask you to take your dominant hand and squeeze the living tar out of your thumb as if your life depended on it, as if you weren't the one squeezing in the hardest, squeezing the hardest in the room that that was going to be a disaster. My thumb is starting to turn a little purple. We're about 15 seconds in. Is anybody tired yet? Is it exhausting? Think about the tradition of your family riding on you, gripping your thumb as hard as you can. Think about your eternity resting literally in your palm as you squeeze the living daylights out of your thumb. We're about 30 seconds in. Are we tired yet? Are we exhausted? Are we sick of it? Is it awkward yet? My teenagers always are looking at me like, what are you doing? We'll give it a little bit longer. Imagine, imagine that it should, it's your job to be the one squeezing the hardest in the room, and you would be letting somebody down if you didn't. And now I think we've reached a minute. Now, here's where you need to listen carefully. You're going to loosen up just enough to slide your thumb out, but keep your fist closed. And now what I want you to do is, either on the table in front of you or in your lap, as slowly and gracefully as you can, try to open up your palm to receive something new, as if I was going to come and rest a dollar bill in it or something. I'm trying. Is anything happening? Are your knuckles locked? Why is it resisting? It was only a minute. Why doesn't it want to open to something new? I use this analogy when I come across a topic in math where kids have been taught something to, to get a question right on a math SOL or something just to get the points when the questions arise. And I ask them, okay, so you've been gripping onto this for a year. This is your understanding of how things work. Why is it so hard to just lighten up and hear something new, which is actually true? And for some reason, we have gripped so hard with this understanding of organized religion um, to what we think 
the gospel is all about, that sometimes it's really hard to open up to a new message. And if you grew up in the church like me, um, you're very familiar with the concept of new birth and being born again, and it's almost turned into a Christian cliche. But I hope that this morning we would open up our understanding of it and hopefully receive something new. If, if we've got a perfect understanding of it already, which I don't claim to have, um, I would be thankful for that. But I pray that we would open up our mind to the context that surrounds basically the banner of Christianity, the guy in the end zone with the big John 3.16 sign, right? Um, maybe that means more than just the slogan of an organized religion. And so hopefully we understand the context of where this comes from. Do we know who said it? Do we know um, to whom it was said? This all comes in the context of John 3. And so we're going to dig in in John 3 and see if the words that Jesus speaks to this special man um, shake us up a little bit too and maybe open our eyes to a new understanding. And so here we are in John 3. We'll just get going. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. And what's going to happen is, if you're familiar with John 3, we know that Jesus is going to describe being born again and having a new birth, and then he's going to continue talking and get to the most recognized of all Scripture, in my opinion, John 3.16, one of the most beautiful verses ever. And I've, I've wondered why it is that Jesus came and spoke these words first to a ruler of the religious community. It feels like a new birth would be more appropriate to a beggar who's been destitute his whole life, or to a paralytic, or to a leper, or to a blind man who hasn't had the physical blessings of being healthy his whole life. But no, Jesus comes and says, new birth is something that must be acquired to someone who's a ruler of the religious elite. And so, why is that? I think it's to shake things up a little bit. And when we look at the name Nicodemus, it actually means the people's victory. And so maybe in a broader context, the reason Jesus comes to deliver this message to a man named Nicodemus is because he's coming with a message that literally will be the victory of the people. No longer organized religion, but something brand new that will actually deliver the people to victory. And you might wonder why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And it shouldn't be too hard to imagine that if you're a ruler among the religious crowd, that it's probably not such a good thing to be looking to someone else for answers or to appear as though you don't have your stuff together. Um, it doesn't look good if a kid has a question in my class and I say, you know, hold on a second, let me call down the hall and see if I can get that figured out for you. He's a little maybe ashamed or a little curious or a little skeptical of being caught going to Jesus, asking of things, but this is the scene. Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so obviously, Nicodemus sees some incredible supernatural power maybe, or at least this, um, this agency that God has given him to do all these wonderful things and say all these wonderful things. And I'm always kind of astonished at how Jesus responds to human beings. Because the natural reaction, I think, if someone came to me and said, man, you're of God and you're doing wonderful things, and we all know that, 
my response will probably be, cool, so you see it too. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the compliment. Jesus appears to not even like acknowledge Nicodemus's address. He just jumps straight to this. Now, maybe there are verses missing from my Bible, but Nicodemus says, we know that you're from God as a teacher. You're doing these wonderful signs, and God is obviously with you. And Jesus just cuts to the, ta- cuts the chase and says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which seems incredibly out of place, but I'm assuming in the wisdom of Jesus, he knew it's exactly what Nicodemus needed to hear. Jesus doesn't actually acknowledge Nicodemus's comments at all. He just gets straight to the point and uses this big word. It's not a big word, but it has big meaning, unless. And there's a big debate in America and globally about absolutes, whether things can be absolutely true or absolutely right or wrong. And you can't look at this statement and say this is not an absolute statement. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I had this thought, when you're speaking in absolutes, isn't it true that you're either going to be absolutely right or absolutely wrong? And so as I was reading this this week, I thought, my goodness, I better make sure that I'm not coming away from this with any sort of theology that would make Jesus absolutely wrong. And we've been talking about Christianity all natural. Jesus himself, the Son of God, said, unless man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And as we've been talking, all these 2,000 years of add-ons to make that statement maybe not so true is a little dangerous to me. Um, And so I... I find myself in this pickle in the public school system of myself believing in absolutes, but being surrounded by an environment where nothing is absolute and everything is subjective. And I, I have this good friend of mine that I've, I've come to love. He, he's of a very different worldview than I am, but we enjoy talking politics and talking school and talking all this stuff um, on our lunch duty. And there was one conversation that we had that it just literally broke my heart. And I wish I had better words than to not say anything at all, but I was just so saddened that nothing came to my mind. And he he was talking about how all the world religions and all of that, why people can't just say that everyone can just get to heaven their own way and whatever their heaven looks like. And, And why isn't it that just doing good and putting positive energy into the world isn't enough? And why can't we all have our own means? And I looked at him and I said, so are you saying that there's, there's no concept of right and wrong because all the global religions are completely polar opposites of each other. They're they're all claiming some absolutes and all saying that the other guys are wrong and we're the ones that are right. And I said, so how then can it be possible that they're all right? And he said, I just believe that has to be the case. And I, maybe I'm the only one that experiences that, but I feel like I'm surrounded all the time with whatever floats your boat is what's going to get you there. And that's just not what's happening here. And this idea of born again, again, it's the first time that it's mentioned in the New Testament. We hear Paul say it all the time, this new life. Um, Peter says it, being born again of a seed that's not perishable, but a seed that's imperishable. But this is the first case where it pops up, and it's not to someone who appears to need a physical rebirth. It, It comes to a person who's a religious leader. And as we continue to read, we'll find that Nicodemus is both baffled um, 
but that hopefully he comes to some sort of understanding of what Jesus is saying. So naturally, Nicodemus responds. And in verse 4, Nicodemus says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So in other words, if this is the first instance these words new birth or being born again have ever come out of a man's mouth, it's obvious that the natural reaction would be to go straight to the natural and say, well, how is that possible? And I'm, my mom is here, and I'm sure that she would tell you that my six foot seven isn't going to get born again. <laughs> not, not by anything she does, anyway. Um, and so Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And as I was reading different commentaries, I, I came across a bunch, of different, a bunch of different things for what this born of the water and the Spirit could mean. And I had kind of a hunch as to what I thought, and then Walt and I talked this morning, and it more solidified the hunch that I had. Some people were saying that being born of the water was some sort of symbol of being purified um, because water was always the symbol of purification and cleanliness and something that would clean things. And then once you're purified, then you're born of the Spirit as if there are two instances that culminate in a salvation story. And that struck me as a little weird because that's not how I think. And maybe this scripture has been twisted so that baptism is some sort of requirement. And I I pray, I don't want to speak out of line, um, but I pray that if I went around the room and asked you, what does water baptism accomplish? I hope that the knee-jerk re-answer would be, knee-jerk re-answer, knee-jerk reaction, there it is, would be absolutely nothing. Water baptism, it makes you wet. It's a symbol, right? It doesn't actually spiritually accomplish anything. It's a symbol of what has already been accomplished in the spiritual realm. And so my hunch is, based on the context of the rest of this statement from Jesus, is that in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, you first have to be born of water. So naturally, you have to be born. You have to be a man. But then a second time, you have to be born of the Spirit. And I was thinking, you know, we've got a big political debate these days about what it means to be a citizen, and our immigration law is really confusing and big, and it's hard to get into the country. And I was just thinking, you know, is there really immigration in the kingdom of God, or is it more like what you find on all those government forms? Are you a U.S. citizen because you are a natural-born U.S. citizen? And I think that's as close as I can get to an analogy of what it must be to enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born into it. You must be able to check the box that I'm a natural born citizen of the kingdom of God. So entering into the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is required by a birth of the spirit. And he goes on farther to say that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now I might be wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking that which is born of the flesh isn't going to turn into spirit. It stays the flesh, and the flesh is temporary, and the flesh passes away. And as we've read all the New Testament saints writing, that the flesh isn't even going to get you close to being, being able to enter into God's presence. 
And so what we need is something born of the Spirit, something brand new, something that literally has its origins from the Holy Spirit of God, which will remain imperishable and won't be tainted and will be our entrance into this kingdom. And I I got this quote as I was reading through a bunch of different things. Um, I'm not quite sure what the guy is, but this quote is really good. It sounds really cool, old English, so it makes me probably sound a lot smarter than I am. But I didn't come up with this. Someone else came up with it. But it says, that, that which is begotten carries within itself the nature of that which begat it. So I'll, I'll write it one more time. That which is begotten carries within itself the nature of that which begat it. And so if you've been coming to Life Journey for a while, you know that being born of the flesh, being born of the race of Adam, comes with it a whole heap of problems. Um, You have the nature of a sinner. You have the nature of someone who's far away from God. You have the nature of someone who was born in a condition of being dead. It sounds like a paradox or an oxymoron, but you were born a dead person, Um, not alive to God, but in a whole heap of trouble. If you are born of the Spirit, now you have, as we're told by Paul, you've become partakers of the divine nature. Now we have the nature of the Spirit, which would be eternal, everlasting, holy, other, in union with God the Father, um, untainted, unblemished. And now that's your nature. You have been begat by that. And so you have assumed within yourself that nature. And at first, Jesus said it was a matter of being able to see the kingdom. Unless you're born again, you can't even see it. But now he, he even amps it up and says, this is the only way you'll ever be able to enter into it. And in my opinion, the only way to really ever see something is to enter into it, right? Um, you might drive past Waz and say, oh, there's the high school. But unless you walk in and get the vibe and meet the teachers and shake the hands of the students, you haven't seen what it means to be a part of Waz. To enter into God's kingdom requires this birth which we found, again, means to acquire a new nature. The flesh isn't going to turn into something that will get you there. You need to be born again, Jesus is saying. And again, get the context of this guy named Nicodemus who's sneaking around at night to get to Jesus just to talk to him. We don't even know what he went there to talk to him about. We have no idea. But Jesus has like, just come straight at him with this. And I can only imagine, much like what happens in my geometry class when I start talking about proofs, Nicodemus was probably just like, I call it mouth breathing when I look out amongst the class and everyone's like, I've seen that a lot already in the first week and a half. The mouth breathing stance. The eyes haven't blinked. The mouth hasn't moved. The neck is locked into a position of, uh, what? So we're we're not told that Nicodemus assumed the mouth breathing pose, but Jesus says to him, don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So something must have happened in the countenance of Nicodemus where Jesus was like, oh, it's okay, like, take a breath, you'll be all right. Don't be amazed, stop mouth breathing, get it back together. But here he, he comes again with this absolute, you must be born again. And again, this whole time that I was thinking about this, Jesus is either absolutely right or he's absolutely wrong when he says stuff like this. And we... Goodness me, I don't want to be the person that says something that makes Jesus out to be wrong. That's a dangerous thing. 
And so then Jesus gets into this explanation of what it's kind of like to be born of the Spirit. And if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, um, that's because being born of the Spirit in the flesh really isn't supposed to make a ton of sense. And so Jesus continues. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, in, in both Greek and Hebrew, breath and spirit come as the same word. And so this idea of wind or breath or the fact that creation itself was simply spoken into existence by the breath of God, this breath and wind and spirit all kind of being intertwined as the same symbol. That's prevalent throughout this. And I, I went out this morning. I walk my dog at about 5.30 in the morning so I can have just some quiet time. And over the summer, it was important to do that because it's so stinking hot in the summer. And I like going out and walking and being cool and not feeling nasty right away. But I walked out, and this morning, the sky was so crystal clear. And I looked up at the sky while I was walking my dog. And I, I thought to myself, because I had all these, these passages in my head, I thought to myself, God just breathed that into existence. He simply said words. And I'm, I'm looking at this just amazing creation just by looking at the sky. I'm not even like looking at all this cool stuff that surrounds us. I'm just looking at the heavens and saying it just required the breath of God to make that happen. And my goodness, I have no idea how it works, right? But the same, the same concept applies here. I can't understand how God could say words and that would happen. But the same should be true about people who are born of the Spirit, I don't know how it works, but man, it happened. God spoke it. God made it happen. And Nicodemus says, I'm sure still maybe with the mouth a little wide, wider open, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? And I was struck by something as I was doing my research of this. Does anybody else know where in the New Testament there's almost the exact same verbatim question posed when when a discussion is taking place between heavenly and earthly things someone responds with how can these things be how can this be does anybody know where that comes from mary so this is what i found fascinating jesus is describing to nicodemus this new birth this miraculous birth that's taking place completely in the spiritual realm and nicodemus says how can these things be And we find the exact same thing happens when the angel comes down and describes to Mary what's about to happen with her and how how Jesus is going to be born unto her. And her response is, how can this be? So this, oh, I got the heebie-jeebies or whatever you want to call them. It gets me every time. So our new birth is to be a miracle. In the same fashion that the entrance of Christ into this world was a miracle. So let's read that passage. And and what I want us to think about, having a little bit of foreshadowing, knowing what's coming, knowing that the writings of Paul and all the apostles have explained in detail that we have within us this birthed spirit of Christ. And you might ask the question, well, how does that happen? Let's read what the angel said to Mary in Luke 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. Again, think about what's being birthed into you at your new birth. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's the same Jesus that's birthed into us. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? So she's looking at this saying, whoa, that doesn't naturally make any sense. This, I'm not understanding this in my flesh. How can this be? And here's what the angel answered and said to her. And I submit, take what the angel says to Mary and transpose that right onto what happens at our new birth and how we um, receive Jesus within us. Here's what the angel says to Mary. The Holy Spirit, this is a working of the Holy Spirit, will come upon you. So you, you sit and wait, and the Holy Spirit will come to you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So think about your conversion. Think about your new, your new birth. The Holy Spirit came to you and came to you with power, power from on high, power from the Most High. And you were completely overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. And something was born within you that was holy. And I, I constantly think about um, conversations that Jim and I have about how he, he likes to say that the word holy just simply means other. This is something other and uncommon. Something other is going to be born unto you by the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the context of all of this, looking at this miraculous birth that came um, during the course of the first Christmas story, the same miracle happens with us. And it almost makes me sick to my stomach um, the way our society views babies. But I, I remember distinctly after months and months and months of trying um, to get pregnant with Jessica. And I'm a math major, so I was doing the math in my head. And I was just thinking about the thousands of different genetic combinations that could go into making our child after months and months and months of trying, and her coming downstairs and just kind of like sheepishly smiling at me and saying, I'm pregnant, the, this overwhelming sense of joy that I got from this miracle that was about to happen. And then we go and we listen to the heartbeat of my son, and we, we take pictures of my son, of his little face and his, his cute little nose, and then he's born, and my goodness, it's that same nose, and he has been manifesting inside of my wife this whole time and he's this this like perfect mix of my wife and me and he takes on our mannerisms and he stands like this because his mom stands like this and he's got all of all of us in him I just look at that and I say oh that is such an amazing miracle and and that's just even in the flesh and you think now about this new birth and what comes and what's been planted inside of you and what's being manifest inside of you when the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the Spirit of Jesus. That's like a totally different ballgame. 
and I, I look at the love that I have for my son, and then I, I take it and I just raise it to the biggest number I can imagine power and try to imagine what it must be like, the love that God has for me, to share in that joy, um, for me to be called one of his and to have his nature. And we get now back into John 3, and Jesus answers Nicodemus. So remember Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? I'm going to kind of run through this part a little fast, but this is what Jesus says. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? I think Jesus is, is basically saying, you know, you're, you're wrapped up way too much in the flesh. And somewhere along the way, this whole organized religion of Judaism has made things so much more about what's happening here than what's actually happening in the spiritual realm. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And I'll be perfectly honest, when we have question time, I'd love for somebody to explain what's going on here. I don't know why Jesus says, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you don't accept our testimony, and then continues in the next verse to start not talking about we, but talking about if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe it if I tell you earthly, I mean, heavenly things? One commentary that I read said he might be speaking, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, talking about Jesus being a part of the Trinity and this whole message as coming of, as a part of the, the Godhead. Um, I don't know. One person simply said he might be grammatically mirroring Nicodemus's address of him, saying, we know that you're of God and you're a teacher. I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on there, other than Jesus is obviously saying, if you don't even understand the stuff in front of you, how can you possibly understand this? But he goes on and I think tries to explain to Nicodemus so he can understand this um, new concept with something that he should be familiar with. Jesus says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And I think what he's trying to illustrate is that there's this path between the flesh and the Father that can only be transversed by the only person who's capable of doing it, and that would be himself. So Jesus is saying, you're not going to get into heaven unless you've got what it takes to get into heaven, and I'm the only one that has because I've come from heaven. Um, and here's what he says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so... Must, again, an absolute statement, must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And so I'm hoping we're all familiar with this story, but in the context of what we're getting up to, the most famous verse in all of Christendom, we're actually going to hop to the Old Testament to get a picture of what's going on. And I, I read all of John. Um, when I was when I was at the beach this summer, and it was it was kind of baffling how every so often Jesus would just kind of out of nowhere say, "I must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up." And I always, I guess, as a kid, thought it was the Son of Man has to die. I have to die. I have to be the sacrifice. But this idea of being lifted up um, just kept popping up as you read all of John. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Old Testament and read the story that Jesus is referring to here. 
okay? We read in Numbers 21 that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And these fiery serpents, I read, were obviously venomous serpents who had a very, like, red and orange and kind of blazing color about them. Um, The Israelites, obviously, as is their history, go on and on and on, doing okay and then disobeying, and doing okay and then disobeying, and then doing okay and falling into idolatry, and then doing okay and then doing something stupid again. And so they've inherited these fiery serpents that are biting them, and they're dying. And so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. So what's, what's the cause of this death? And what's the cause of this condition? It's the sin. And because we have spoken out against the Lord and you. And here's what they say. I love this word. Remember the context of no one can ascend into heaven other than the one who has descended from heaven. The people are asking Moses, intercede with the Lord. So I'm looking at this up and down from heaven to the flesh, from heaven to the flesh as our intercession. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Not just heal us, not just make us better, but remove this condition. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. And that might sound weird because fiery serpents were the problem. But the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard which is a fancy word for a big, tall pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So I had a couple thoughts that came to me as I was looking at the parallels between this Old Testament account and what Jesus is describing here, that he must be lifted up. We're told over and over that the Word became flesh, that Jesus became a man, and that Jesus himself is saying that he must be lifted up. And I found it amazing that fiery serpents are the issue, this condition that man has acquired by these serpents is the issue, but yet God has said, make a fiery serpent, and that's actually going to be the solution. But it wasn't just a fiery serpent that you could reach down and grab off the ground and stick it on a pole. It was, as Jim likes to say, other. This was a bronze serpent. This was a serpent unlike all the other serpents, but still a fiery serpent. And I think about how the venom of a snake would kill you. I read this up. Um, I, had, I had this thing on my computer, and my wife looked at me like, what are you doing? I had these pictures of snake bites and what happens to blood and this like medical journal up. I said, I'm doing my research. So when a snake bites you, Depending on the venom, it does a bunch of different stuff. It can thicken your blood so that from inside, things aren't functioning correctly and just slow down blood flow until, obviously, you can end the sentence and figure out what happens there. It will shut down your muscle systems to the point where the muscles that control your breathing shut down. It paralyzes the nervous system so that everything within you isn't communicating the right way. And no matter what the venom was it, was, it was a death that came from something that had been planted inside of you that just tore up and shut down your core. And so I think about the fiery serpents that had come and, and had bitten the Israelites. Their condition now, their problem, 
was something that was eating them up from the inside, this poison within them. And so think about, again, this being born of the flesh, being born of Adam and having this sin nature. This is this poison within us that's just destroying us at the core, killing us at the core. But what what the Lord said to Moses is that a, a fiery serpent, this other fiery serpent, was going to be the intercession and enter Jesus, taking on flesh, taking on the look and the embodiment of man to then be raised up, not just on a fancy pole, but on a rugged Roman cross so that those who would look to him, and I don't think, I mean, I didn't dig into the Hebrew language, but I'm assuming that when the Lord said, those who look at this serpent will live, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a like, hey, how you doing, serpent? And I'm going to be okay. I'm thinking it's a look, this, this 100% of my focus and attention with this dependency on this is all I even have to make myself better is to look upon this other and holy thing. And it said that those who looked at that serpent would live. And so they've passed from this poison that was killing them on the inside to now having life. And Jesus, several times throughout the Gospel of John, like I said, continues to use this phrase, I must be lifted up, I must be lifted up, I must be lifted up. And I, I even wonder if these few verses in Numbers, this story of Moses and this historical event of the fiery serpents, maybe it didn't occur because simply the Israelites were disobedient, but because it was going to have this shadow, um, this story that the Israelites could relate to of what Jesus was about to accomplish for them. And so we're going to now enter into one of the most famous and well-memorized and well-quoted scriptures of our faith. My son um, my son knows this one with all the hand motions. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. John 3.16, amen. But I, I've got this book that is all about the Gospel of John, and he's got this entire chapter that he wrote about John 3.16, and I don't know that I could say it any better, so I'm just going to read what he says here. This is A.W. Tozer. You can search the libraries in all the world and search through every book of every language under the sun, and you will never find any 25-word text that compares to John 3.16. Even if you would collect all of the great minds of all of the philosophers and thinkers and writers from the beginning of time and put them in one room together, all their combined talents could not produce a text that means so much to the human race. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Tozer goes on to say, to boil it down into the familiar terms and words that we can understand, I can restate this phrase by simply saying it means that I mean something to God. <sighs> Once that phrase is stated, nothing more needs to be said. That sums up in compressed, 
pressurized fashion the whole intent of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that I mean something to God. And so I'm going to read it again in the context of new birth being shared with a religious leader at night who was ashamed to not quite have all of his ducks in a row um, in light of this situation where this poison that was attacking the Israelites from the inside was going to be cured by looking to a serpent that was other and holy and looking intently on him as if it was their only hope. Here comes John 3.16 again. And I think I'd be remiss if I forgot to remind us who's saying this. Jesus himself is saying this. For God so loved the world. And later on in this book, Tozer says, it's not a problem to replace the world with your name. For God so loved me that he gave, this is a gift, this is nothing I could earn, this is something I receive, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, and I've, I've been told that the, the original language there is believes and keeps on believing, that whoever believes and keeps on believing in him, this other fiery serpent, this holy man, shall not perish but have eternal life. I don't know, that's, we say it all the time around here, but that's too good to be true. But again, I don't want to be someone that claims that Jesus is wrong. So you want to talk about adding stuff on. This is it. And then it goes on and says, For God did not, and this is where I think a lot of organized religion gets stuff wrong. Jesus is about to say himself why he was not sent. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Um, Jesus continues to talk throughout the rest of the chapter about this condemnation and this, this judgment um, and it's good to understand and it's good to know, but for me, not to say that it's a good thing maybe to cut out Scripture or to not read all of Scripture in the context, but when I read, he who believes in him is not judged. I can stop and be happy, <laughs> right? And so, oh, goodness. He who believes in him is not judged. If we believe and keep on believing in this other and holy Son of God, we have passed from judgment. We've been born again. We're, we're partakers of the divine nature. And this judgment isn't for us. We, we were living in it. Um, I think if we're going to go into what this judgment is all about, I think the condemnation was already upon us. We were born into it. We were inheritors of the condemnation. Talk about being born of the flesh and staying flesh. That's a rotten deal. Um, we, we are living in judgment from day one um, because we haven't believed in the Son of God. But when we do believe, we pass into this 
the state of not being judged. And I, I remember having a conversation with Jim a couple weeks ago. And I'm, I'm jumping back to John 3.16 because it's too good. Um, about this in, idea of inheritance. And, and it says, Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as a kid, I always thought that was cool talk for, I don't need to be afraid of dying because I'm just going to keep living forever that way. Like some, some translations have everlasting life. And I always thought it was a that direction on the number line sort of thing. It was just, there's no end that way. And that's really cool. So I don't need to be afraid. And that's what we tell our son. Our son asks questions about, um, well, what's going to happen when you die? And what if you guys die? You know, if he sees something in a, in a movie or something where someone passes away, he'll start asking the question of us. And we've reassured him that, you know, when mommy and daddy die, it's okay. It's going to be fine because we're actually going to live. We have new life. And you're going you're gonna to come join us later and we'll all be happy. But it's even bigger than just that direction. We've, we've talked about this idea of inheritance. And in our family, um, I've got some great-grandparents who had made some pretty wise decisions and had accumulated um, a pretty good wealth for themselves. And as my great-grandma, who is, what is she, 99? 99. Woo! I don't want to go that long, by the way. I want my timeline to stop before 99. Um, They're trying, our family's trying to manage her assets so that Uncle Sam doesn't get a huge chunk of it um, when the time comes. And so this idea of inheritance um, in the flesh you know, that's, that's passed down from generation to generation, and there's, you can look at your family tree and go on Ancestry.com and just, like, keep going to see where you come from and all that's been passed down to you genetically and monetarily or whatever. And my poor son, his inheritance for me, we're a couple school teachers. That's not going to be a big deal. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, inheritance in the flesh is even so helter-skelter and depending on the situation and the circumstance. And when I was talking with Jim, it's as if there's this, this boundary between your flesh over here, your family over here, what you've inherited all the way back from Adam, um, your sin nature, your death, your condemnation, living in this judgment because you have not believed in the Father, all of the sins that you've ever committed. And then as soon as we enter into this state of belief, We're now translated, that's the word Paul uses, transferred into this new realm where your family tree is really small and really big at the same time. You're a descendant of Jesus. And now when I think of eternal, you know, everlasting has this idea of that way. When I think of eternal, I think this way. When we pass into this realm, when we're born of this spirit, and we come over here where Christ is who's giving us our inheritance, where Christ is the seed of which we are birthed, we get his past. His inheritance hasn't been handed down generation after generation and maybe wasted away on some bad decisions or something. We get the fullness of God given directly to us where in this realm, it's just us and Jesus, me and him and him and me. And I think eternal life is even a bigger deal than just, I'm infinitely awesome this way because of Jesus, and life this way is going to be infinitely awesome. I think of eternal life as being a condition. 
So we had this poison inside of us that was killing us on the inside. That was a condition of, of wrath and judgment and sickness. But now that we've been birthed into this eternal life, this is a state of being. This is a condition of life that we can inherit and walk in now that the desires of our flesh, which we were born with but now separated from, don't have to conquer and rule over what we know in our spirit to be true. That all these add-ons that we might have from 2,000 years of organized religion don't have to govern the way we think, but that we can rest on the absolute that I've been born again. And there was a sermon I was listening to where the pastor said, wouldn't it be dumb if someone came up to you and just asked you, have you been born? Right? Well, you're looking at me. Who are you asking? Right? Look, I'm right here. There's my mama. There's my daddy. Of course I've been born. Look at me. And he says, shouldn't it be just as obvious if someone were to come to you and say, have you been born again? That you should say, of course I have. Look at what I've got. Look at this. And my prayer is that we wouldn't be waiting for the timeline way out that way to experience this, of course I've been born again. And of course I have this new life, this eternal life. I looked at the Son of Man who, is, who was raised up. And he's now delivered me and I've been born again. My citizen now, my citizenship now, I can check the box. I'm a natural born son of the king. I've been born into this kingdom of God where life has a quality of being eternal. And that it's not just my life, but that I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. And my, my life now has this perfection that reaches in both directions. And I, uh, I had a conversation with this same friend at, at school. Um, and we were talking about the, the Hurricane Harvey relief. And he, he's very cynical of organized religion. And he knows where I went to college, and he knows that I'm a churchgoer and all this stuff. And I think he was trying to elicit a response from me um, so that we could have kind of an antagonistic discussion over our chicken tenders and french fries. But he said, you know, I just... I've been really bothered by some of the, the big churches and all that um, down there in Houston. And I looked at him and I said, brother, I think there is plenty wrong with big organized religion. And he just kind of looked at me and was like, uh, but you went to school here. I was like, yeah, there are plenty of problems with big organized religion. I'm not changing my answer. He says, but you go to church. I, yeah, there's plenty of problems with big organized religion. And I didn't get into the conversation with him then, but I was like, this is all happening as I'm preparing this. I said, it's not about religion, it's about new birth. Um, big organized religion is going to take away from what Jesus said, unless you be born again, you won't enter in. And so we're going to get to our journey marker here and open the floor for any discussions. But as I was reading through all of this and thinking about this initial encounter with the idea of new birth and being born again and being born of the Spirit, which is just rampant throughout the whole New Testament. I was thinking in the context of who that message was first delivered to, and this popped into my mind as a journey marker. Religion is all about what you do with your life, but Jesus is all about giving you his life. And I don't want to be the kind of person that lives my life trying to manage my life and trying to work, 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 work so that my life in the flesh somehow measures up. I want my life to simply just ring of the grace of the life that's now in me and that 
nothing I can claim is of anything that I've done, but it's of that one who was lifted up in whom I believe. Religion is all about what you do with your life, but Jesus is all about giving you his life. I'd rather be a part of Jesus than a part of religion. And so with that, I guess we'll open the floor if you have any questions, or if you can answer the question what Jesus is doing when he's saying we in that verse, I'd love to know. Let me make this on. You're the expert. Check, check. Okay, so you were talking about um, the baptismal, baptism mm-hmm. um, with the water. And I think back to, like, Jesus being baptized. So obviously there's something to be said for that. The other piece of it that I was thinking about was being born again. So when I think of that, I think of the fact of, like, when you are cleansed and put down into the water when you come up, it's almost like you go down, it's a death of that old flesh, that old person. And when you come up, you're filled with the Spirit and you are born again. Therefore, it's almost like that cleansing of the old body, the old person, and then come up again. And I almost think sometimes we forget, like it's not the actual physical act of you coming out of the womb of your mother, but in a way it is because think of the fluid in which you're in, and when you're birthed, everything comes out, and obviously when you come out of the water, you're coming out of that womb almost. So. I don't know. I think it's it's very simplistic, but complex all in itself. And when you were thinking about that, or when you were saying that, I kept thinking about, but Jesus did it. Mm-hmm. You know. So when we say it's you know it's just water, or you didn't say this, it's no big deal. But in in essence, because I've had similar conversations with various people about being baptized, you know various religions have their own opinion on baptism. Is it necessary? Is it not? Do you do it? Do you not? Is it just a situation where you can confess with your, you know, your mouth that Jesus is the son of God and um, I believe and things of that nature. But I just think it's all, it's all a process. And, you know, we go on a journey and through that journey, I feel like that's kind of that true confession afterwards. Like, you know, the old person is dead. Here's the new person in the spirit. I am confessing, you know, that I do believe and that, I, you know, I have full faith in everything in which the Bible has to offer and says and all the um, knowledge that I can gain through that. And also through, you know, coming to church or having conversations with pastors or believers and not everyone is going to have that same opinion as you said your colleague has kind of that that earthly opinion of oh can't we all get along or you know everybody should have their own way of life and so I'm still I struggle with that somewhat I don't want to say daily but on an average a big average of my life just hearing that and hearing Yes, we all have our free will, and God gave that to us, 
And the other piece is the grace. So if you start expressing your free will and it's not necessarily in the Christian way, there is grace and you can come back from there. So anyway, that's all. To the baptism piece, and Walt, you might have a thought on this too. Um, when John the Baptist was baptizing, he was baptizing with regard to a repentance of sin. So they were, they were coming to the, to the river, repenting of sin, and then being baptized. Um, Jesus came, obviously not in the light of repentance of sin, but more as an identification, I think what I think of, an identification with his mission to reach these sinners and as a prophetic act of what this second baptism will be. And so I can't recall exactly where it is, but I think Jesus himself says that John is the greatest of the prophets. And so Isaiah was prophesying of how Jesus would be wounded, um, how he would be afflicted for our transgressions. Jeremiah prophesies about um, this new heart that we have, that God's law will be written within us, that no one will have to say, know the Lord, because we all will already. And Jesus comes onto the scene and says, but John is even greater. And I think it's because John's act of baptism was a prophesying of a greater baptism, which I think can be found in Romans 6. And so this, this baptized into what and for what and as a result of what I think is a bigger deal. So the baptism that I find much more important, which the water baptism as a believer is simply a representation of, is being baptized into Christ, his death, his burial, raised anew in the likeness of his resurrection. And then with the new birth thing, we've talked about it before, having two natures. I don't think it's the nature that you're born with in the flesh and then being birthed alongside that, a new nature of the Spirit. It's that baptism um, that puts the Adam nature to death. And then when you rise up again with Christ in his baptism, it's entirely new nature. And so I, I guess you might have more words on why Jesus himself was baptized. But All I was going to add is a, is a very important question. Uh, must you be baptized by water in order to be uh, saved? And, you know, while <clears throat> I totally agree that water baptism is an amazing, amazing, amazing celebration of two things. It's a celebration of a funeral, the death of the old man, and it's a celebration, secondly, of the birth of the new man. Um, but the question is, does going down into water, H2O, and coming up out of water, H2O, is that act what saves you or is the old man dying having been placed into christ and his death and the new man being birthed uh, in essence being baptized into christ and i'd have to say that being baptized into christ is what in fact uh saves you and then the water comes along later as a celebration um we, we're going to have in a few weeks riesland's uh, third birthday party but that's a birthday party that's not her actual birth. It's a celebration of the birth. And that's water baptism. It's a celebration of the death of the old man and a celebration of the life of the new man. And Peter says that exact thing in First Peter chapter 3. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So Peter says, baptism saves you.
What? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So he clarifies. He's like, I'm not talking about water. I'm not talking about going down dirty in H2O and coming up clean in H2O. But this is what saves you, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's talking about placing your faith in Christ. So he's, Peter's really clear that it's not water that saves you. It's water that you, you use to celebrate what has saved you. Um, when I was five years old, everybody was getting dunked, and I wanted to get dunked. I was five. And so I say, hey, what do I need to get, do to get dunked? And they just said, well, say this prayer. So I said a prayer, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was five years old. I went down a wet center, and I came up a wet center because I didn't know about faith in Jesus. I just said some prayer. Well, later when I was in my teenage years, when I realized the reality of my life in Christ, that I didn't have a life in Christ, et cetera, that's when I placed my faith in Christ and I was born again, even though I'd been baptized when I was five. Now, I then got uh, celebrated with, a, with being baptized after I was born again, but my five-year-old baptism is not what saved me. Um, it's placing my faith in Jesus Christ that saved me. So that's, I don't know if that brings any clarity or, or not. So I'm all for celebrating the death of the old man and the birth of the new man in water. I'm all for it. In fact, if you haven't been baptized and you'd like to be baptized by water, let's go to the swimming hole and let's do it. But it is not, it is not what saves you. It is a celebration of the death of the old and the birth of the new. At least that's how I hear Peter saying it. Um, Steve? Uh, Craig, I, I think I've got those heebie-jeebies you were talking about because a real miracle happened this morning right here. I have never in my life been able to understand a math teacher as well as I did this morning. And when Walt told me that you were preaching, I sort of said, oh. He's going to talk in mathematical terms again, and it'll go right over my head. But Craig, Jessica must have written this message for you this morning, because <laughs> it was right on. And I, oh my gosh, you were so clear in what you said, and it did give me a whole new perspective of what we have, uh, both talking, Walt, about lying beside still waters, and you sort of magnifying the whole 316 into it being 25 words of that's all you need. Oh, my gosh. I mean, gee, money. And how is it with your friend at school that he couldn't understand or see as clearly what I saw this morning? You know, I, I ask myself all the time, I mean, my wife, who maybe some of you all know, is, is, is Jewish by birth and Jewish by heritage, and she constantly tells me that faith to her is something so abstract, she just can't grasp it, just doesn't understand it. What is faith? And, and you know, it is just so out there to her she says I've got to be black and white concrete you know what I see is what I know you know what I can't see I don't understand and and 
I presume that's the way it is with your friend at school. And I just, you know, just pray so much that by your continued communication with him, by others who, and myself, who continue to communicate with my wife, that through the Holy Spirit, their eyes are opened into seeing this glorious thing that we have, you know, this adoption into God's family, uh, not of this flesh, as you all said, we're, we're not of that lineage anymore. We're of God's lineage, and that thing that goes that away, I mean, I already have Jim's boat. He's been trying to sell me his boat, but I already have it. I mean, I didn't have to give him seven grand for it. I already have that boat, and even better, I got a boat full of fish without even putting my rod in the water. I mean, that's how great the wonders of God are. It's just you've got everything you could possibly want when you know Jesus, and it's just such a wonderful thing that, you know, anything on this earth, your grandmother's inheritance that you may get some of or you may not get some of, just depending on Uncle Sam, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that may make things here on this earth a little bit better for a while, but all of that dies and goes away. The inheritance that you have of the kingdom of God is just such a great thing. And you just put it so eloquently this morning and just congratulate. Just nice work. Thank you so much. <laughs> it so, just really came across great. To talk um, about my friend, uh, whenever I have a conversation with my Omi, um, you know, you even said there's 25 words of just, I'm hoping to us, crystal clear, that's all you need, um, is rubbish and confusion to someone who hasn't had revelation. Um, and so it would be my prayer, I suppose, that we pass from seeking knowledge to seeking revelation. Um, and I hope in my communication with him that I don't come across as someone who knows a lot, but someone who, to whom much has been revealed. Um, and it just, I don't know, if you've got friends like that where, you know, when he just says the words, well, I guess I'm going to hell because I just think Jesus was a prophet. I just like want to hug him, you know. Um, I don't know. I just pray for revelation. chosen to believe your friend my wife they've not chosen you know
know their eyes have not been opened and you know it's it's um, I can't help but think of all possibly all of the eyes in Texas that may be opened after this cataclysmic event you know people helping people and and you know not knowing these people you know that you're helping yet you know leaving your families and your workplace and everything else to come rescue and help people down there they've got to just sit there and say why me just like I do with why I was chosen why I was accepted into that that family I mean God, you know at times I thought God didn't really know me or, or if he did he, he made something pretty awful I mean that's how I grew up you know so much of my life but you know geez he loves us Something else I read said, John 3.16 and John 3.17, the opening words of both of those verses are a missionary's best friend. For God so loved, and he was not sent to judge. Um, that's how we should communicate. Any other thoughts before we have to start packing up and getting out, Jim? Jim's responsible for about half of this. So. <laughs> I mean... John 3.16 cannot be understood without the bronze serpent story, which you, you brought in. And, and to explain your friend's predicament, he's one of the, the Israelites who are being bitten by snakes. Now, which the, the uh, snakes represent sin, and when they bite you, it brings death. So sin and death. You know, that, you got that, that dynamic going on. But the word that came from God was to look and you would not be dead. They were perishing and all they had to do was look. So in, in that they looked, they believed the word of Moses, the word of God. They believed, so they looked. It wasn't the looking in itself. It was they believed the word and looked and they received life. They were perishing. So what does John 3.16 says? And this was love. It wasn't the bronze serpent wasn't judging them. It wasn't Jesus judging them. It was sin that was, they were already perishing. Mm -hmm. So John 3.16 says, So for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, which represents the bronze serpents on the pole, that whoever believes, whoever looks, Whoever believes in him shall not perish. So, I mean, it's a direct correlation. John 3.16 is the bronze serpent story. But they'd, they'd have eternal life. And you, then the question is, why, why would you not look? If you were dying from snake bites from sin, why wouldn't you look? Some of them didn't look. Some of them died in their snake bite situation. Well, why would you not look? What well, you didn't believe that if you looked, you would be healed. You didn't believe it. So you didn't look. And that's your, your friend or any person that's rejecting this. They don't believe they'll receive life if they look. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was, that was great that you brought in the bronze serpent because, I mean, that explain to me is a, 
Old Testament example of John 3.16. So. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Okay, any, any other thoughts, questions? Yeah, Jonas. I think it's uh, good to hear the discussion and the dialogue about this awesome, you know, how can you dissect salvation? And uh, um, I, it's been some time ago, I read about the persecuted Christians years ago talking about baptism and, you know, some of the things that have has divided, the add-ons that have, have, have divided. And as the story went, uh, these Christians, there were different groups of Christians, and they were persecuted, and they had some division among them. And when they were persecuted, they got together under the cover of night and got together. Some of these people who formerly wouldn't have been together, and, uh, and in the end, it said that they accepted one another. Uh, they even had divisions on the form of baptism to, to be considered a believer. And they accepted one another, not only whether they were baptized or not, but that they had this new birth. And they even laid down the idea that whether somebody was water baptized or not, they accepted. So to me, and, and my prayer is that as we come together in this free country where we can believe, you know, it's cheap for us to say things and take positions and have divisions. But I'd rather lay this down earlier and honor the oneness that you talked about, you know, uh, beforehand and see that clearly. And, you know, I have left things behind. I came from the religious background. And, but to me, it's beautiful to be able to just honor people's journey, where they're at. There's probably not a right or wrong way to do this, except that I do believe that in order for us to lay this down, put it on the altar, you know, if it burns up, let it go. And uh, so anyway, when you started talking about how eternity not only went this way, but this way, that shed some, that helped me to realize this new birth was something that was put in place by God while we were yet sinners. Mm -hmm. And and then when you put water baptism or any other shadow thing in place that is a mere shadow of the real thing, and Lord, help us to see it. Any other thoughts? Probably need to start packing up here soon. I just had one that I wanted to share. Um, he came at night, uh, which I think is just a great picture of just the the darkened in his understanding, Nicodemus's understanding. How can these things be? At the end, so that's John 3. John 21, if you remember, it ends with the, the disciples out fishing at night in the middle of the night, and they, could, they didn't catch any fish. You from, remember this? You know, John 21, he fished all night. And then Jesus comes as the day is breaking and is starting to get light, and Jesus shows up and says, put your nets on the other side, and they're like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Quote, how can these things be? And then, you know, there's so much fish that they have to bring other boats out, and it overtakes them, and now they're at the beach having breakfast with just a ton of fish. I just see it as an awesome picture of the darkness in our understanding, like Nicodemus, like the disciples in the night,
But then as light was shed, the entrance of Jesus, Jesus coming into the picture, as the light of Christ and this reality of um, his death for us and our death with him and a new life with him, as that reality starts to give way and, and, and be revealed, the, 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 uh, not just awareness, but the revelation of that comes a whole new light of, of understanding and of, of purpose and of uh, perspective, etc., so that the light has now dispelled the darkness of the confusion and the doubt and the frustration. And we're just sitting there with Jesus having breakfast that we had nothing to, like we couldn't, we, we tried our best in darkness to get breakfast, if you will, using that illustration. But Jesus comes with light and makes it happen. And it's just, wow, why does he love us so? And we just eat with him. It's a fellowship. It's a intimacy it's a communion and we forget that I, I forget that I forget the the relationship you know that we have with him so much well let's stand be close with a word of prayer thanks Craig for sharing this morning and uh, we will continue we'll, we'll wrap up uh, our Ephesians uh, uh, journey uh, next week where we're going to talk about the armor of God what's this armor of God stuff it's pretty fantastic if you want to Come back. I encourage you to do so. If you can stick around for a few minutes and help put the tables and chairs back in, uh, that'd be a, a huge, huge help. Um, yeah, Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for Craig and for all that he uh, shared with us this morning. And we just thank you for being um, the lover of our soul. We thank you that uh, that you've given us life. You've given us your life, this eternal life that we spoke of, that Jonas reflected on, this eternal life. It's actually someone's life. It's Jesus's very own life. And so our life is his life. How can this be? Thank you that we have a Christianity where that question is asked often. How, can, how is it possible? How can these things be? Because they don't add up in our minds. They don't add up in our finite human thinking. But they make perfect sense in your mind. For you are love. And you have graciously bestowed this love upon us. And so, Father, as we celebrate Labor Day tomorrow and we think of the labor that you did on the cross and in your resurrection so that we can cease from all of our labors as we eat hot dogs and hamburgers tomorrow, may we just remember this finished work of Christ. And if we make any effort, the effort is to rest, to rest in your finished work, your finished labor for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.